Hi, everyone. My name is Michelle from The Table in Uniontown. Thanks for tuning into our podcast this week. We're happy you're here. This is the live recording from this Sunday sermon. We're currently in our sermon series, You've Got Mail, where we discuss the seven letters to the churches in Revelation. We hope that as you listen, you'll more deeply understand the truth of God's word and how much he loves you. Let's jump in. Welcome. You've got mail. It's good to be back up here this morning. Man, how about those announcements? If you if you've been here, does that just not give you warm fuzzies and then and then a new bass player? I mean, what a morning. What what a morning it's already been, right? Well, this morning to make up for uh, last week's change of schedule, we're going to be discussing two letters from the book of Revelation. The first is the letter to the church in Smyrna. This is a very short letter found in Revelation 2, 8 through 11. So I'm going to give you a moment to turn there in your Bibles this morning if you have one. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, it'll be on the screen behind me. If you don't have a Bible at all, or at least a Bible that you can read and understand, please talk to me afterwards. I would love to put one in your hands. All right, Revelation 2, 8 through 11. Write to the angel of the church of Smyrna. Thus says the first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life, I know your affliction and poverty, but you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you, and you will experience affliction for ten days. Be faithful to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will never be harmed by the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Smyrna was located 35 miles north of Ephesus, and Smyrna was a pretty happening place in its day. It was financially prosperous, had a harbor that was very useful and contributed to the success and prosperity of the city. And and Smyrna um, had become a problematic place for Christians. It's uh, a place that's heavily tied to Rome, and it's a place that's strongly populated by Jews. So this meant that Christians were kind of the odd ones out, which you will understand more of here shortly. So Jesus uses contrasts here at the beginning of his remarks. He says, I am the first and the last. These are opposite ends of the spectrum, obviously, right? He says, I am the one who was dead and came to life. It's the same idea. And then he says, I know your affliction and I know your poverty, poverty, but you are rich. He's saying, I know you are going through it right now. I know you're financially strapped, but in another way, and spiritually that is, you are wealthy. So the question we should ask is, well, why are they in poverty? 
They're in this prosperous city, right? They're in Smyrna. And so why isn't any of this wealth trickling into the pockets of the Christians in Smyrna? Well, as I said, Smyrna is strongly tied to Rome. In fact, they were the second city to receive the distinct honor of being the center for the imperial cult, the the worship of the emperor. And as I said, there were a lot of Jews there. But the Jews, the Jews were monotheistic, as you well know. And they believed that there was one God. And because their religion was both ethnic, tied to kind of who they were uh, ethnically, as well as um, being quite old, they were exempt from worshiping the emperor as far as Rome was concerned. Now that sounds great. And it is. Sort of. So Christians saw themselves as part of Judaism, as they well should. Jesus, we know and they knew, fulfilled the promises made to Israel and the, Mess- and the Messianic prophecies in the Hebrew Scriptures. So, of course, Christianity and Judaism go hand in hand in that way. And so for a while, Christians were also protected and exempt from emperor worship, and so they weren't persecuted for refusing to bow the knee to a false god. But then problems started to arise. Synagogue leaders and just some of the Jews in general started saying, these Christians, they ain't with us. Jesus isn't our Messiah. This movement, this Christian movement, it's something else. Jewish Christians became unwelcome in the synagogue. Scholar Craig Keener adds this about the situation. Smyrna's ruling class was predominantly Asian Greeks, with whom the Jewish community had less secure relations with than, say, in Sardis. The Jewish community in Smyrna seems to have been substantial, large, and they seem to have been on more positive terms with the Roman government. At the same time, they could not afford to take chances after the Judean war against Rome two decades earlier, which resulted in special taxes Jews everywhere in the empire had to pay. Many Asian Jewish leaders were probably nervous about being associated with prophetic messianic movements like Christianity. And this, this continued after the moment in time Revelation is speaking to, by the way. It was Jewish accusers who betrayed the church father Polycarp. Anybody ever heard of Polycarp? I mean, yeah. Uh, one of John, this John's disciples, to Rome, and it was because of them that he was executed. So to go back then to when John says, uh, when Jesus says, through John, I know your poverty. Why, why are they impoverished? Well, to work at a particular trade in the first century, you'd have to be part of what was called a guild. Now, that's fine, except to be part of a guild, you'd have to participate in pagan religious ceremonies, which sounds weird to us today, but that was a different time. So, like today, if you're a house painter, to do that trade, you have to be part of a house painting guild, and you'd have a meeting with your guild mates, I guess, or whatever you'd call them, and you'd do this like weird pagan religious thing at the beginning of your meeting, and then you can get down to business talking about primers or whatever, right? But these Christians aren't going to participate in pagan religious ceremonies because they're committed to Jesus. And then they're not going to be made exempt from that ceremony because the Jews have made it clear these Christians aren't Jews, they're something else. So then what? Yes, you can't profit off of your trade. You're out of work. You can't make money. You can't buy food. Now you can see why Jesus says, I know your poverty. And Jesus doesn't say, you guys, you don't have to do that on my account. Like, 
Just cross your fingers, hold your nose, do the little ceremony so you can buy food. Don't go to all that trouble on my account. It's impractical, right? No. He says, I know your affliction and your poverty, but please know when your stomach hurts and you have no money in your wallet and your children are crying because they're hungry, you are actually spiritually very wealthy. I cannot imagine the joy that the Spirit of God must have provided for these people during this hard time for the church so that they might press on. Then he says, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews, but they are not. Interesting. The slander, in part, is the Jews saying these Christians aren't with us. We don't claim them. They're not Jews. And Jesus says, you say they're not Jews? No, you're not Jews. They say, you're not part of God's family, Christians? No. Guess what? They're the outsiders. They're not part of God's family. Instead, they're a synagogue of Satan. Now, a disclaimer. This phrase, synagogue of Satan, has been co-opted by awful anti-Semitic groups. And there's no room ever for hating a people group. And it's especially egregious to take God's word and weaponize it to hate people. So yeah, don't, don't do that. I shouldn't have to say that, but in case somehow I needed to, there it is. He's talking about John and Jesus. They're talking about a very specific group of Jews in the first century. And this group of Jews were aiding Rome and keeping people from food and resources, imprisoning innocent people where, where possibly they would be tortured and sentenced to horrific deaths. And that's what Jesus points to. Christianity was considered atheism in the first century. And, and as a new religion, it was considered a superstition. And so that's two legal charges right there. Atheism, promulgating a superstition. And Jesus says, don't be afraid about what you're going to suffer. And in that, it's implied you're going to suffer. He says, face it with courage. And he says, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison. It's funny because it's the, the pairing of the Jews in Smyrna and the Romans that are going to do that, but it's the devil doing his work through those parties. And he says, you're going to be tested. This is a test. Will you be faithful to Jesus in the face of some of the most horrific things that you can imagine? You'll experience this affliction for 10 days. He's not saying all of them will have exactly 10, 24-hour periods of imprisonment or affliction. He's saying it's not going to last forever. It's, this is symbolic. It might be a reference to the testing that would be for 10 days mentioned in Daniel 1. He says, don't just be faithful to the point of poverty, which you already have been, but be faithful to the point of death. And when you are, you'll receive the crown of life. That's what these Christians were up against, death. Not just dying in your sleep, death, but being tortured, dying in agony. And again, Jesus doesn't say, you mustn't go to all this trouble for me. No, he doesn't say, just say what you need to say to get out of it. All will be forgiven once you're safe. No, survival is not job one for these Christians. Faithfulness is job one. Be faithful, even if it means they kill you. Then you'll get the crown of life, which is probably referring to the laurel wreath that the victors received in the Olympic Games. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. The one 
who conquers will never be harmed by the second death. Saying, be faithful, overcome, die once. Walk away from Jesus to save your own skin, die twice. Our second reading this morning, a few verses longer, is from Revelation 2, verses 12 through 17. That's the letter to the church in Pergamum. Write to the angel of the church in Pergamum, Thus says the one who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. Yet you are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death among you where Satan lives. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites to eat meat sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So repent, otherwise I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. Pergamum was a capital city in its region, the capital city in its region. And and with its prominence there came the, again, honor of being a place of worship for various deities. There was an expansive acropolis on which sat temples to Athena, some of you have heard of Athena, as well as the temple to the god of healing, Asclepius. There was a temple dedicated to Augustus in Rome, so the cult of emperor worship was there and strong. It was the center for it, in fact. And there was a large altar to Zeus, the savior. Does this sound like a hard place to be a Christian? Does this sound like a hostile place to be a Christian? It is, and Jesus knows it. He says, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. The serpent was a symbol of Asclepius. And that huge statue of Zeus they had, it had snakes on it. That might be the connection to Satan's throne, the serpent in Eden, right? But it goes deeper than that. Look at the activity, all the paganism. This is literally, Pergamum is literally Satan's playground, Jesus says, and you live there, church. You live in Pergamum. Jesus sees you in this really hard place, and he commends something. They haven't let go of Jesus altogether. They still keep their faith. They don't, they don't, they keep their faith, sort of. They don't deny it publicly. They say, we follow Jesus. And they do that with great bravery, because they do it in the days of God's faithful service, ser- servant, Antipas, who was put to death among them in this place where Satan lives. In Satan's backyard, they watched Antipas be killed for the same faith that they are publicly claiming. And even witnessing that, they haven't backed down from it. Jesus says, well done to that. There are probably plenty that would disassociate with Jesus and Christianity when the heat was on, even like Peter did temporarily when Jesus was arrested like we talked about last week. These Christians in Pergamum, they didn't do that. And that's a big deal. That's a big deal. 
but we still hear these words from Jesus just like we heard to the church in Ephesus a few weeks ago. But I have a few things against you. Now, I think perhaps the Ephesian church, what they were doing, the loss of love for one another, right? It's something that sneaks in and you don't quite notice it maybe until it's pointed out. And then they heard this rebuke from Jesus, these Ephesian Christians. And I think they thought, wow, you're right. You're right, Jesus. That is true. And I hope they corrected. But I don't know that these Christians in Pergamum are feeling that way. When he says, I have these things against you, I think they know what's coming. You have some who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites. Now, you, you maybe wonder who Balaam is, but it's not that there's an actual guy named Balaam in the late first century. Rather, this is a reference to a past event. If you look, at, if you look to Numbers 22 through 24, you'll learn a lot about Balaam. He's, the, he's famously the guy whose donkey spoke to him, if you're familiar with that story. Maybe that rings a bell. But Balaam here isn't a compliment of someone. It's not like saying, you're like David, or you're like Moses. No, this is, this is a harsh word. Ben Witherington says this about Balaam in his excellent Revelation commentary. This Balaam is not likely a person's real name, but it is given because of the character of his actions. John sees him as a false prophet, leading God's people astray to immorality and idolatry. Here we have the association of idol food with fornication. And then he says, I've argued elsewhere at length that the term idolothuton, the Greek word, in early Christian literature refers to meat sacrificed and then eaten in the presence of an idol, which is to say within a pagan temple. Whether John had in mind sex with sacred prostitutes, which would mean porneia is used in its technical and root sense, or more likely the sexual dalliance that went on at dinner parties held in temple precincts is uncertain. In either case, John is warning, these Christians, by the way, John is warning against going to pagan temples and and participating in events there. John says that Balaam taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites. He says, Forget cursing them, put sexual immorality and food sacrificed to idols in front of them, and you have a way better chance of pulling them off course, away from God, to their own demise. They also have in their midst, in the church of Pergamum, those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans, who, if you remember, to our best understanding, encouraged cultural accommodation and secular living. So in Ephesus... They had a real reverence, if you remember, for sound doctrine and holy living. They were true to the one God. They were missing love for one another, but they got a lot of things right. In Smyrna, these Christians were willing to suffer for Jesus. They were afflicted. They were in poverty because they weren't willing to bend the knee to false gods. They weren't willing to bend on the fact that there is one true God and there are no others. This hurt their livelihood. They couldn't join trade guilds. It was taking money out of their pockets. It was taking food off their tables. They were likely struggling to to not starve. But then Pergamum. This is a different story from the first two. Pergamum is a great cautionary tale of compromise. They believe in Jesus 
And not only that, they won't let go of Jesus. They hold to his name. They won't deny him with their lips, even when they see Antipas put to death in front of their faces. And yet they're in a pretty, pretty bad place. You got, you, you got to see, this is going to, this is going to like shock you a little bit. Being willing to suffer for Jesus, something that, that feels so extreme, something that feels so sold out, so devoted to Jesus. Being willing to do that doesn't mean you're good then. They were seemingly willing to die for Jesus, but they weren't willing to live for him. While the Ephesian church was devoted to holy living, Pergamum was willing to be sexually immoral. While Smyrna was sold out to the one true God, they were willing to put up their livelihood, their very lives to deny all other alleged gods. Pergamum seems willing to go into the temples of these other gods. Pergamum, they seem like if perhaps they have to go through a little religious ceremony to be part of a guild, maybe that's not so bad. They're still not going to deny Jesus after all. What could it hurt? While Ephesus and Smyrna seem to be separate from the culture to maintain a distinct Christian identity, for Pergamum, it seems like pretty much it's all good. Anything goes. And I wonder, I wonder, as we sit here this morning, I wonder which church we identify with here at the table. There are more churches that we're going to talk about in a few weeks, but for now, just out of these three. Are we like Ephesus? Are we devoted to the truth of God's word? Are we absolutely intolerant of unholy living? Are we in no way making cultural accommodations at the cost of faithfulness to Jesus? And yet we've run out of love for one another. Are we like that? Or are we like Smyrna, where we're going for broke with Jesus? We don't care what it costs. Don't care how hard it is. We are all in with Jesus, and all that's left to do is keep going. And I, I hope that we're like that. Maybe minus all the suffering, I don't really prefer to suffer, but other than that, that sounds pretty good. Or are we like Pergamum, God forbid? Yeah, we're like kind of Jesus people, you know. Jesus is all right with us, but like, gotta live a little. Christian morality is only gonna hold us back. So long as we believe in Jesus, we don't have to be so beholden to the rules, do we? Our sexuality is our business. We'd like to just kind of keep God out of it. Maybe, yeah, the, the triune God of the Bible is the best God. He is the best one. We like him the best. It's not going to hurt to bend a knee to some other gods if it makes life a little easier for us. It makes our neighbors feel a little better about us, right? It's not like we're bailing on Jesus. And the Nicolaitans, they, they're not so bad. What's wrong with a little cultural accommodation? I mean, we don't want to seem intolerant, do we? We can adopt some of the sacred maxims of the culture around us for the sake of relevance, right? Love is love, to your own self be true. Whatever the accepted as self-evident truism of our day is, we can accommodate that. Which of these churches are we most like? I pray that it's not Pergamum. But here's what you need to understand. Here's, here's the thing. We are a small church. We are a small church. And as your spiritual life goes, largely so goes the church. Why? Why, why would that be true? 
because you are a larger percentage of our church than you would be in many others. If you went to any larger church, you went to a mega church in our area, you might be a fraction of a fragment of a percent. And your spiritual life would have a lesser impact on the whole. But our church, when you figure everyone in, right? If everyone showed up on a Sunday, everyone is probably part of this thing. Our church would still be smaller than 100 people at this point. Which means you, yourself, sitting there, make up greater than 1% of our church. Think about that for a second. Your spiritual life matters. Now, if you're here this morning, you're not a follower of Jesus yet. We love you. Please keep coming here. This is a safe place for you. But I'm not speaking to you in this instant. I'm speaking to the Christians, the Jesus followers among us. If you are living a life of immorality, if you are sort of giving Jesus just a small part of your heart and making all sorts of other accommodations to the culture that are contrary to the word of God, if you aren't living faithful lives to Jesus, if I'm not living a faithful life to Jesus, then you and I are affecting the whole. However you are living in relation to Jesus, however you personally are living in relation to Jesus, automatically 1% of our church is living that way. So Paul is addressing a whole church, not individuals. And so, so I want to ask these questions about our whole church, but it's made up of individual Christians. He says, you have those among you who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. He says, he, he doesn't say all of you do this. No, he says, those among you. And what those among your little family that is the church do, it affects the whole. Your spiritual life matters. How devoted to Jesus you are matters. How close you walk with him matters. How you choose to be uncompromised matters. Your commitment to the truth of scripture matters. Your unwillingness to tolerate wickedness matters. What defines the individuals of this church will largely define the whole. So how will you contribute? Now, this isn't a call to weed people out. Please hear that. If you're hearing this message, you're like, well, I'm not very committed to Jesus. I'll just see myself out. No, no, no. This is a wake-up call to say, press into your relationship with the Lord. Press into knowing the scriptures and what they say, protecting the truth in this place. Flee from immorality. Keep going with Jesus. Have no other gods. And if this is you, if, if the letter to the church of Pergamum feels like an arrow aimed at your heart, please hear this. Jesus doesn't say, well, you're basically done for. You've messed up too much. You're done. No, he doesn't say that. He says, repent. You can repent. You can turn around. You can turn back to faithfulness to me you can avoid the judgment that comes to those who aren't faithful to the end these people aren't just sinning they're living lives of compromise they didn't deny their faith in jesus but at the same time they're they're living very compromised lives that there's still time there's still time to turn around there's still time for repentance as long as you're above ground as long as you're upright you can repent and receive forgiveness and you can be reconciled to god
you can change. So if you've been living in this sort of state of compromised one foot in, one foot out with Jesus, if you've been living that kind of life, repent. So Otherwise, I, Jesus, will come to you quickly and fight against them. He means the people doing that with the sword of his mouth. And the sword of his mouth, it means a word of judgment. Repent lest you receive a word of judgment. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. He says, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. Rather than the food sacrificed to false gods that will satisfy now, if you conquer, you will receive food from the real God, and its supply will never run out. If you don't compromise, if you don't eat food sacrificed to idols in the temple where it happens, if you don't put your lively, if you put your livelihood on the line, God will come through for you just like He did for Israel with manna. You will receive fellowship more lasting, more satisfying than the, than the fellowship you receive at these pagan feasts. You will receive the provision of God himself. You can count on it. God will provide for you. Jesus says of the one who conquers, I will also give him a white stone. And on the stone, a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. You might think, what on earth? is that all about? The white stone. Nancy Guthrie, in her book about Revelation, sums up the possibilities nicely. She says this. She says, in, the, in his commentary on Revelation, Richard Phillips explains that in the ancient world, a white ceremonial stone called a tessera had a number of different meanings, and each could be applied to those who overcome. Champions in athletic games in John's day were given a white stone. So perhaps this promise communicates that as they overcame the temptation to compromise, they could anticipate receiving recognition of their victory from Jesus. White stones were given as a token of admission to pagan feasts and festivals. So while they might not be welcomed into the pagan feasts of Pergamum, they could be assured of a place at the table at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Additionally, white stones were used in courts of law as jurors would vote for acquittal by setting forth a white stone in contrast, in contrast to a black stone for conviction. So while, like Antipas, they might be convicted in the courts of Pergamum, they could be assured that in the courts of heaven they would be declared not guilty. And the new name? Ben Witherington says this so beautifully. The new name implies a new identity of being someone special in the kingdom. Christians do not have to compromise on earth by socializing with pagans in temples when they had a much better engraved invitation to a much better banquet. Michelle, you can come up. So, Pergamum and Smyrna. Who do you relate to this morning? Who do you relate to this morning? Are you going for broke with Jesus? Or are you trying to have a little Jesus while living a life totally accepted by the world as well? Jesus says that isn't an option. If you're going to be his, you must be all his. And you must be willing to lose whatever being devoted to him will cost you. 
this morning, we remember what his devotion to us cost him. We remember that on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, and again, giving thanks, he said, this is a new covenant in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. We remember the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus every week as we take the bread and we dip it in the cup in this meal that we know is communion. So I'd ask you this morning that you would, you would just look at your life for a minute. Is it compromised? Are you living a compromised life? Where is it compromised? What part of your life is compromised? And what would it look like to give those parts of your life fully over to Jesus? So just maybe sit for a few moments with God, with those questions, and just ask him to show you, where, am I compromised in any way? And then, when you're ready, you can stand and take communion. We, we take communion here every week by taking the bread and dipping it in the cup. You can find communion in the back corner there on my left. We have gluten-free communion uh, in the back on my right, if that's what you need. My friends Randy and Rachel uh, will be on either side of the room. They'll be available to pray for you. If there's something that you need prayer for, I would urge you not to think too hard about whether or not someone should pray for you. Just stand and approach them and let them put a hand on your shoulder and, and go before the Lord with you. Um, let's pray. Father, uh, we might read these letters and we might look at Pergamum especially and think just that it's it's so extreme going to pagan temples and having meals there with pagans, probably participating in, in some of the religious things happening there. Sexual immorality. Um, those seem like extreme things. And, and maybe in some ways those hit home for some of us, but I, I imagine many people here today, the compromises the places of their life that are compromised, they're much different. They're much, uh, much sneakier. They seem much smaller. And God, I just ask that as we get ready for communion that you would convict us of the places of compromise in our lives. That we might give more of our hearts to you and that you would convince us of your love for us. That we might not that we might not fear, but that we would repent and accept and welcome your forgiveness into our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for listening to our Sunday service. If you're interested in joining us in the future, you can find us at 17766 Cleveland Avenue Northwest on Sunday mornings at 10. Additionally, we host a meal every first and third Sunday after service in order to fellowship with one another. Visit aseatforyou.org for more information. We hope you'll join us next week. Go in peace.